Well, would you turn in your Bibles then to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. And any kids here, kindergarten to second grade, can be dismissed to children's church if they'd like to go off to children's church. And while our kids are making their exodus, I would invite you to turn to Luke 22. It's on page 1044 in your pew Bible. Page 1044. And today we come in Luke chapter 22 to the very end of the story in Luke of the Last Supper. The last couple of Sundays we've been looking at the Last Supper, and now we come to the last part of the Last Supper. And it kind of ends on a heavy note. It's, it's this part where Jesus predicts that Peter is going to betray him. So, in this story we see ourselves so clearly reflected. Let me just read this last segment. It's Luke chapter 22, verses 31 to 38. Jesus said, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, and that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. Then Jesus asked them, When I sent you without purse, bag, or sandals, did you lack anything? Nothing, they answered. He said to them, But now if you have a purse, take it, and also a bag. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. It is written, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. The disciples said, See, Lord, here are two swords. That is enough, he replied. Well, I'm really psyched to preach this text. I mean, you know, I'm always psyched to preach the Bible, but I'm really stoked about this passage of Scripture because. As I was studying it this week, it just seemed that the gospel is so clearly illustrated and laid out in this text. And I, I love the gospel, the basic core message of Christianity. And here in this text, it just seems to me so plainly displayed and organized before us. You know, when you think of the gospel message, you can, in a sense, put it, uh, see it as two parts, two pillars, two truths that have to be taken together. And one of, uh, one of those truths is illustrated in verses 31 to 34. And the other one is illustrated in verses 35 to 38. They're like two axioms that are the essential message of the gospel. Uh, for some of you physics people, uh, think of it as it's like the first and second law of thermodynamics. This is the first and second laws of salvation dynamics. In other words, salvation in, in the gospel is based upon these two great truths which are so wonderfully illustrated here in Jesus' interactions at the Lord's table. And so even if you haven't read the New Testament and even if you're not a theology scholar and maybe you went to church growing up but you're like, I still didn't get it. Would someone please explain it to me? If you can get these two pillar truths, you have the Gospel and you understand what you need to know. And so I love it because I love any text like that that makes big things uh, clear so that I can grasp them. I'm, I'm kind of a simple mind. I like things laid out and organized for me like this. So I'm really psyched about this text. And the first truth is this. 
the first law of salvation dynamics, the first fundamental pillar that we have to understand that's illustrated in verses 31 to 34 is this. You are a great sinner. (laughs) And when I say great, I don't mean like, yay, you know. I mean like huge. You know, we would say wicked here in Massachusetts. You're a wicked sinner. That's the first truth. Uh, That's the first thing that we see in this text. And it's so perfectly illustrated in Simon Peter, one of Jesus' disciples. Because here we have Peter, who's been with Jesus for three years. He's been at his side. He's been Jesus' right-hand man. Here they are on the night before he goes to the cross. And even here, Peter is about to blow it big time. He's about to totally wipe out, morally speaking, and fail Jesus profoundly. And if that is true of Peter, how much more so is it true uh, for us? Look what he says in verse 31. Simon, Simon. Now, right away you know that he's got bad news for Peter. Because he's saying his name twice. You know, it's like when my wife says to me, Jeremy, Jeremy. I I don't know what I did, but I just know it was bad. And I'm in trouble. And I know something's about to happen. So, when, when Jesus starts off, Simon, Simon. It's like a parent talking to his kid. Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. So basically what Jesus is telling Peter is, Peter, uh, you're about to blow it big time. Big time. And if I wasn't praying for you, you'd be in big trouble here. I mean, let's look at uh, what he's saying to Simon. Look at verse 31. He says, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. That's a really interesting sentence, isn't it? I was kind of cogitating on that one. There's a lot there. I mean, first of all, there's a mention of Satan. And maybe some of us hear that and we're like, okay, this is the 21st century. We don't believe in devils and spirits in the 21st century. Uh, But I don't know any other way to put it, except from the beginning to the end of the Bible, it is assumed that there is a spiritual world. You know, that's a question. Is this world simply atoms and energy and matter? Or is is there a spiritual dimension to this world? And the answer we see in Scripture is that there is a God, there's a heaven, there's a hell, there's angels, there are spiritual realities, and there are spiritual beings, and there is a devil. And, uh, you know, it's just there. You know, not everything in the universe, people, can be measured in a test tube. Not everything can be known by hooking up a gadget and, you know, using wires to get a readout on things. You know, love, how do you measure love? What is it? How do you find it scientifically? And yet we know love is real. It's one of the most profound, powerful forces in the world. What is evil? I mean, it's one of the most things that that rocks and shapes this world, and yet it's not a, a scientific test tube kind of thing. And so there is a spiritual dimension to the world. There's a spiritual dimension to our lives. It's not simply all the products of the neurochemistry that's going on in here. And there is a spiritual dimension, and so we see in Scripture that there are spirits in addition. And notice what Satan asks, this devil. He says, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. This is the main thing you need to know about Satan. I mean, how does it work? Where is the devil? I mean, I don't know. know, It's a spiritual thing. I, I don't fully grasp it. But this is all you really have to know. There's only one thing you need to know about the devil. He wants to sift you like wheat. If you got that, then you understand the important thing, that this is an enemy. 
that the, the, the role of Satan throughout the Gospel of Luke has been to oppose and to resist and to tear down the work of God and to oppose Jesus as he brings healing and peace and forgiveness and reconciliation. And so there is a devil out there who wants to destroy us and who is very effective at destroying people. Um, the, the Bible says in the Gospel of John that the thief, referring to him, comes only to steal, to kill, and to destroy it says in 1 Peter that the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And so that's his M.O. He just wants to destroy the work of God in this world. And, and he uses all kinds of tools. Sometimes it's alcohol and drugs. That'll destroy. Or sometimes it's uh, relationships and, and dating uh, the wrong people and adultery and pornography and sex. Sometimes it's money. Sometimes it's ego and pride. Sometimes it's suffering that we go through. But whatever tool he uses, he wants to grind down and destroy our faith and to keep us from seeing the glory of God. Uh, Satan is a street fighter. You know, if you've ever been in a street fight, there's no rules in a street fight. You just grab whatever you can get your hands on and you swing it. And that's how Satan fights. He grabs whatever works and he swings it at us to try to dissuade us from our faith and to, to destroy our lives in every sense of the word. But here's the, the cool part about this verse. Again, look at verse 31. He says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked. So this great destroyer has to go to God and get permission. Excuse me. <laughs> he is, the devil is real, but he's also the Lord's devil. He can't do anything that God doesn't give him permission to do. And notice that Jesus says in verse 32, He says, I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. It is the power of God that protects us as Christians from the power of evil. It's not anything in us. We're nothing. We can't defend ourselves. But God's power is what protects us and watches over us. And so we have to stay under the umbrella of Christ because that's where our protection is from evil, not in ourselves. Without God's power in our lives, we would succumb to all of His temptations and we would be destroyed and be sifted like wheat. <clears throat> so basically what Jesus is saying to Peter is, look, you're about to blow it, man. And if I wasn't praying for you, uh, this would wipe you out, what's about to happen. You're about to do a crash so big that if I wasn't praying for you, you'd probably just ruin your whole faith. You'd be shipwrecked because of what's about to happen. But here's the good news, verse 32. When you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. There's going to be a point when you're going to turn back. And that word means repentance. That's what that word turn back means. It's not talking about physically returning. It's a turn of the heart. And so we wander away from God and we ignore Him and we put Him behind us. And eventually you go far enough in life and if you're blessed, you'll come to a, a, a precipice and you'll stop and you'll say, whoa, where am I going with my life? Why am I doing this? I've got to turn around. I've got to get back to God. And so we turn back and you think, oh, I've got a long journey back to God. And guess what? God's right there. Because it takes a long time to walk away from God and we do it. But when we turn back to God and we repent and look to Him, He embraces us and forgives us. He says, when you turn back, then go about the task of strengthening your brothers. Because it's not just Simon Peter that, that Satan wants to sift. It's all of the disciples but Simon's just the example. Because if you go back in verse 31, Simon, Simon, Satan is asked to sift you as wheat. In Greek, that word you is plural. So in other words, he wants to sift all the disciples. And Simon is in some ways a representative of that. So basically what Jesus is saying to Peter is, look, you're a great sinner. 
you're about to blow it really big. And if I didn't pray for you, well, the devil would take advantage of this and he would obliterate your faith. But listen, I'm praying for you. You're going to be okay. And when you finally come to your senses and repent and turn back, then it's going to be time to go and strengthen the other apostles. And Peter doesn't like that. Nobody, but I don't like it either, nobody likes being told that they are a great sinner. Nobody likes being told you're going to profoundly fail God. You know, we don't... Eh. Maybe you don't even like that now. You're like, oh, thanks, Pastor. I came to church looking to be uplifted and I come in and you're telling me I'm a great sinner. Yeah, thanks. Appreciate it. You know, way to give me a, a great you know, start to my week. But, but really, we're just like Peter. We, we are great sinners, but we don't want to acknowledge it. And ironically, that's one of the characteristics of being a great sinner is a form of self-denial. We don't want to acknowledge it. We want to hide it and think better of ourselves than we really are. And so look what Peter says in verse 33. Peter replied, Lord, which is ironic that he calls him Lord, even though he's totally disagreeing with him about to set Jesus straight. It's just weird. So he's like, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. Like, what do you mean? I'm your right-hand man. I'm Peter. I'm the rock upon which you said you would build your church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. I, I'm the first among equals. I'm the guy who jumped out of the boat and walked on the water to you. I'm Peter. Look, I mean, it's me, right? I mean, Jesus, I mean, maybe some of these other bums. Yeah, they'll probably, you know, let you down, but not me. I'm, you know, put me on the torture rack, tie me to the stake. I'm going to be faithful to you to the end. And so, in the same way, we, we think of ourselves much more spiritually together and acceptable and true than we really are. We, we just are in denial about the fact that at the core of our being is a fundamental orientation away from God. Look, I mean, sin is the one doctrine that anyone can believe in if they're not a Christian. Just look at the world. It's broken. <laughs> no matter what peace plans they use, it doesn't work. And no matter how much education you give people or how much assistance or help or whatever, people still some find some way to twist it and warp it and bend it and manipulate the system. You know, and it's because we don't need more education. Well, we do, but it's, that's not going to ultimately fix us. And it's not like giving money to, to people in need, well, which we should do, but that's not ultimately going to fix. Because the problem is not an exterior problem. It's an internal problem. There's something bent within the human soul, so that even when good things are done to help people's external situation, the internal sinful nature still twists it and uses it and distorts it. And so we find that we're great sinners even though we don't like to acknowledge it. And so we do little things to make us feel that, you know, well, maybe I'm not so bad after all. And I've never, I've never ceased to be amazed at how I just have to do a couple little acts of righteousness to convince myself that I'm really not so bad after all. It could be like walking to work and, you know, there's the guy with the Dunkin' Donuts cup, you know, panhandling. And, and so you go by and you reach in your pocket and you're like, oh, it's a five. Well, you know what? Fine. Okay, and you give him a five dollars. You walk by and I'll tell you, that good deed, you, you, can, you can nurse that for all day. You'd be sitting around at lunch going, <laughs> remembering that, yeah, that's a five I gave that guy. That's pretty good. Yeah, you know, that's me. What can I say? Um, or, or, you're, or you're driving in traffic and you're, you're trying to take a left and some poor guy's on a side street trying to get out here and 
So you're like, ah, fine. So you stop your car and then you do one of these things. This is my pet peeve in New England. Everyone's like a traffic cop in their car. Everyone's like stopping and they're like, no, 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 no. Like, Just follow the rules. Okay. <sighs> yeah, I have issues with that. So, so and, and you know, so you let some guy go and then you're like, oh, I'm, ah, I let that guy go. That was pretty good of me. Or, or your light bulb, a couple of light bulbs were not. You gotta, I gotta get new light bulbs. So you go to the Home Depot or whatever, get light bulbs. And you're like, oh, I get the regular bulbs, or I can get these long-lasting halogen bulbs, which are more green and energy efficient. And you know what? It costs a little more, but you know what? I'm going to do my part to save the environment. So I'm going to get the new. I'm going to replace all the bulbs in my house because that's the kind of guy I am. So you get those, and there's a sale on those. No, no, I want to pay full price because you know it's who I am. And and it just takes a little thing like that. To make us think that we're great. It, it just amazes me how a little quote-unquote good deed can blind me. Even such a small thing, it somehow blinds me to see that the whole week I've been a selfish person, that I haven't you know, focused on my kids, that, that I've been all about my own needs, that I haven't given one thought to the glory of God, which is the greatest, most awesome thing there is. And so God said the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is to love your neighbor as yourself. And I haven't done those things. That doesn't characterize my life. People don't look at me and say, yeah, you know, the most important thing about Jeremy is he clearly loves the Lord his God with all his mind, soul, strength. I, I, that's not what I'm after fundamentally. But I can ignore all that because, you know, I did this little hmm, whatever and, and I convinced myself that I'm okay. And even when we talk about ourselves... You know, we say, well, I don't, really, I, I try my best, and I'm, I'm a, not a bad person, and, you know, I do what I can. I do what I can to help out, and, hey, I've never murdered anybody, right? You hear that one? So how bad can it really be? And even when we start to own the fact that, well, maybe there might be a dark side to us, even then we don't really own it. Even when we come to admit that we are sinners, we don't really admit it that big. <laughs> it's kind of a half-hearted sort of thing. I love what uh, Spurgeon said. I have this book of Spurgeon quotes. It's great. And Spurgeon said this. Spurgeon was a, a 19th century British preacher in London who was just a tremendous preacher, one of the greatest preachers in all of church history. He said, I am quite certain... Oh, oops, that's the wrong one. Oh, here it is. <clears throat> Different quote. No man living has ever exaggerated his own sin or thought too basely of himself. There does not live beneath the canopies of heaven any man whose sense of sin is as deep as the sin really is. I love that. No one has ever exaggerated his own sin. Sometimes people would come to Spurgeon and they would say, Oh, Pastor, I'm such a wicked person. I don't think God could ever save me. And Spurgeon says he had a habit. He would often say to those people, Yeah, you are. And actually, it's much worse than you even realize. <laughs> and they'd be like, Whoa! <laughs> You know, I, I came for you to pull me out of the ditch. And the pastor's like, boom, you know, you're going down further. But he did that to disabuse people of any hope and any vestige of self-righteousness. It's not our sin that's keeping us from God. It's our righteousness that's keeping us. It's from thinking that we're okay. And even coming to the pastor and saying, you know, I'm a great sinner. You can take pride in that. And you'd be like, well, at least I'm admitting it. You know, there's just no end to self-righteousness. Martin Luther said that whenever he preached, 
He would inveigh against self-righteousness wherever he went. And no matter how many times he preached on it, he said it just seems to keep cropping up in our hearts. It's so diabolically insidious. Uh, I, I was um, The other day I was on... Uh, not the, uh, actually, this was a couple of years ago. The, the other story the other day. So it, I was driving up 228... Um, and I was coming to Queen Anne's Corner. I was about to go on 220. I was up 53. And you know if you take like, you're going north on 53, then you come this way to the church there at that corner. And I was, uh, I was coming up to the red light, and I could see in all the directions, you know, there's kind of a hill going there. I could see there was no one coming, and, and you know, so I, I rolled through the red light, you know, um, just because hey, I knew it was safe, and I could see there was no cars coming, and I was in a hurry. And really, I mean, what's the big deal? Except, of course, the uh, state trooper behind me... Uh, had a slightly different opinion and interpretation. So he, you know, turned on his roo-roo, so I pulled over. And I remember he comes over to the car and, you know, so, what's going on? And I remember I said, ah, officer, I said, I, I was just being stupid. And, which is true, but that's such a shallow answer. I mean, the full answer would be, I'm impatient. I don't think the laws really apply to me. <laughs> and, and I've been through this corner, so I think I know it all. And so I decided it was... Okay for me to break the law. That's the full answer. But even then, you know, you're, you're soft pedaling. You're like, well, I've been stupid. Ah, you know, and this is the kind of things we say. Oh, I, I don't know what came over me. I really wasn't myself. I was being dumb. I made a mistake. Um, you know, I, I, I don't think I got enough sleep. I think I just need a nap. I'm not focused. <laughs> my, my parents didn't give me enough love as a kid. And... <laughs> So there's always another reason why it's not really me. And so even when I'm faced with my sin, I still don't own it the way I should. I still don't embrace the depths of it. I don't really lay it out before me and see it in all of its hideousness, which is part of the nature of being a great sinner. And so Jesus has to press the point home with Peter. Go back to Luke 22, verse 34. Jesus is like, fine, you think you're so great, Peter? You think you're such a holy guy? Fine. All right, I'm going to tell you exactly what you're going to do. I'm going to tell you exactly the sin you're going to commit. Verse 34. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. So before the rooster crows which means kind of in the middle of the night. The Romans divided up the night into four watches. And the third watch of the night was from midnight to 3 a.m. And that watch was called by the Romans the cock crow because that's when the rooster started chiming in and started crowing and all that. And so, look at, you know, when are they having this meal? I mean, what is it, like 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock? It's an evening meal, so sometime at night. They're having this meal together. And Jesus is saying by like 3 a.m., you're, by then, you will have denied me three times. You think you're so righteous? Just a few hours from now, you're going to start falling on your face. And in fact, it's so certain, and you're so depraved, Peter, that I'm not even going to tell you it's going to happen before it happens. That's how certain it is, Peter, that you are a great sinner. And sure enough, that's what happened. <clears throat> because we are great sinners. We fail so profoundly, and, and we can go from church, and we can go from Bible study and prayer meeting, and like in the next breath, 
we're screaming at our children excessively and we're criticizing our spouse and we're gossiping and lusting and greedy. And it's amazing how quickly you can go from one to the other. Just like Peter, like boom, boom. Uh, last week, that's the other story I was going to tell you. Last week, I mean, as in May 27th, I was driving from here, from church, after church, up to Queen Anne's Corner. It always happens at Queen Anne's Corner. See, it's not me, it must be the corner. Um, so I was driving up to Queen Anne's Corner, and I was going to go on the left to go back home, and, and this guy in front of me, you know, the light was green, and he's slowing down in the left lane. I'm like, dude, come on, we've got to make the light. Let's make the light. And he slows down, slows down, and the light turns yellow and then red, and he stops. And I, I kid you not, I'm in my car going, dude! Ah, ah, ah. And, and it's like, I, I can almost audibly hear the Holy Spirit going, you were just preaching half an hour ago. And I... I can just go so quickly into selfish mode, just like that. Isn't it amazing what great sinners we are? We are great sinners. And not just in funny things like traffic, in profoundly deep and life-destroying kinds of ways. And we don't realize that it's only by the grace of God and the intercession of our High Priest, Jesus Christ, that we are kept from being devoured by the power of Satan. In fact, the only thing that keeps you and me from being cast into hell forever, this very second, is the mercy of God. There's nothing that keeps us from that. There's nothing righteous in us that protects us. Purely His self-restraint for His own glory, is what keeps the world from being judged at this very moment. It's His patience and His kindness and His mercy. Because I am a great sinner. You are a great, horrific sinner. But Jesus Christ is a great Savior for great sinners. And that is the second great pillar of the Gospel. That there is a great Savior for great sinners. And so may, may our, our self-righteousness be obliterated and help us, Lord, to look at Jesus and see His righteousness and glory. And so to be a Christian, what it takes is simply to embrace and accept and internalize experientially those two truths. That's what it means to be a Christian. It's not based on what church you go to or what rituals you've been in. It's embracing that I am a great sinner and Christ is a great Savior. But you have to have both. Like Samson, you must put your hands on both pillars in order to be redeemed, in order to have vindication. And if you have one without the other, it doesn't work. If it's just I'm a great sinner, well then, you know... It's like you beat yourself up and you fall into a pit and you're like Judas. You know, he hangs himself in despair. And if we just emphasize the love of God and never talk about sin, well then, you know, everything's great and I'm okay and you're okay. And it's like, whoa, 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 what about evil? What about sin? And we live in this fantasy world where everything's fine and God's happy with everything and everybody and everything's okay and you're okay and I'm okay and everything's okay. And it's not all okay. And so somehow we have to hold on to these two pillars of the Gospel. 
To become a Christian is to go on a journey, an infinite journey of infinite length, in two opposite directions simultaneously. So, I, I don't know how to do that, but that, that's what it takes. We have to go deep, deep, deep down into accepting and realizing and grieving over the depths of our depravity and grieving over the fact that we don't really grieve over it the way we should, while simultaneously launching upwards in faith to behold and to savor the great mercy and love of Jesus Christ for us. And so somehow, by God's Holy Spirit, we're empowered to do the impossible, which is to repent of sin and to embrace the greatness of Jesus. So it is a joyful repenting. It is a hopeful turning from sin when both of these things are held together. And that's what Jesus talks about in verses 34, 38, just quickly here. He talks about His act of salvation. Verse 35, rather. He says, Then Jesus said to them, When I sent you without purse, bag, or sandals, did you lack anything? Nothing. And they answered, He said to them, but now if you have a purse, take it, and also a bag. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. Why does Jesus want the disciples to arm himself? I don't think he literally does. In fact, later on in the Garden of Gethsemane, remember, Peter is going to strike the ear off the servant of the high priest, and Jesus says, put your sword away. The kingdom of God doesn't advance through violence and power. Christians are not to take up the sword to make converts. That is completely contrary to the Spirit of Christ. It's not a violent religion. It's not supposed to be. Um, What Jesus is saying is things are going to become grim. He's he's speaking of it metaphorically. Of course, the disciples miss that because in verse 38, the disciples say, See, Lord, here are two swords. And he says, That is enough. I I don't think he means it like, Oh, good, that's enough. Two swords will do the trick. It's more like, Yeah, that's enough. Guys, guys, (laughs) you still don't get it, do you? That that there is a darkness coming upon them. Whereas before, they didn't have to take purse and bag and sandal when they went on their missionary journeys because God provided everything. Now, darkness is coming. And specifically what's going to happen is, verse 37, it is written, is written, and then he quotes from Isaiah 53, and he was numbered with the transgressors. That's the quote. And I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching... It's fulfillment. And so Jesus Christ is a great Savior because He was numbered with the transgressors. He was reckoned or considered or counted as if He was a sinner and a lawbreaker and a criminal. And I think about the different ways that's true in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, It's been true of His whole ministry, hasn't it? Throughout His ministry, Jesus is hanging out with the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the sinners and all of the unacceptable pariahs of society and all of the religious leaders say Jesus is with them. He must be one of them. And so they've been counting him as a sinner because he hangs out with those people. But not only that, on the cross he's going to be judged by the Romans and placed on a cross between two criminals. So he's he's going to be reckoned or considered to be as a transgressor even while he hangs on the cross. But it's not just that the religious authorities count him as a transgressor, and not just that the Roman authorities are going to put him in the place of a transgressor, but he's also going to be reckoned or considered a transgressor by God the Father, which is the miracle of the cross that God considered the pure, 
sinless Jesus to be a sinner in my place. And if you go back to the original quotation, we're in verse 37, he quotes from Isaiah 53. Let's turn back to Isaiah 53, if you wouldn't mind. It's on page 731. And there it's so clear that it is God who is reckoning him to be a transgressor. Look at Isaiah 53, verse 12 on page 731. Here's the quotation. Isaiah 53, 12. This awesome passage of Scripture. Messianic prophecy. And so speaking of the Messiah, it says in verse 12, Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide spoils with the strong. Why? Because... He poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. Why was Jesus numbered with the transgressors? Is it because he was a criminal? No. Because for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Sin is something we have between us and God. And so God took our sin and he placed it on Jesus. So that when Jesus was on the cross, it was as if he was, God was just taking the big manure shovel and shoveling all the manure of our sin onto Christ. And Christ was bearing it in our place so that our sin might go to Jesus and His righteousness and acceptance and glory might come to us. Such an amazing transfer and, and substitution that takes place with Christ. Think about this. I mean, He's sitting there with Peter. And he knows. He's looking at Peter. And he knows what Peter is about to do in just a few hours. Peter is going to totally stab him in the back. Have you ever been stabbed in the back by somebody you love? And yet, knowing that he's going to be completely stabbed in the back by Peter, he still is praying for Peter. And he's like, I'm going to go to the cross for you, Peter. Isn't that amazing? What a Savior. A great sinner needs a great Savior like that. And to think that Jesus and God and, and the Spirit, the, the whole Trinity, God saw the whole topography of our lives before we were born. That He knows everything I've ever done that has been displeasing to Him. He knows right now the evil that lurks in my soul. He knows even from now all the ways I'm going to disgrace the name of Christ and not live up to my calling as a pastor and a father and a husband. He sees all of it, and He sees all of yours. I mean, think about seeing all that at once. It would make you vomit. But instead of vomiting and saying, oh, I'm done with these people, hit the judgment button, He sent His only Son so that all of that might be heaped upon His Son so that we can be forgiven. What a Savior! What a Savior! And so people, this is the bottom line. We have one hope. There is one parachute. There is one lifeboat. There is one fire escape ladder. And His name is Jesus Christ. Because our sinful condition is so desperate that only a great Savior could rescue us from our great predicament. 
trying a little harder to be better, trying to be religious, you know, giving the dollar to the, the guy asking for money, recycling, you know, they're all good things, but they can't fix our dire sinful condition before God. So we need a great Savior, and His name is Jesus. Being a Baptist will not save you. Being a Catholic will not save you. Uh, even believing Christianity vaguely defined or believing in God is not enough. We have to lay hold of Jesus Christ as our Savior. And so that's what I'm calling myself and all of us to. Have you embraced Christ? Do you know that you are a great sinner? And have you turned to Jesus as a great Savior? Is your hope invested in Him? And even as Christians, those of us who have been followers of Jesus Christ for many years, who say, yes, I believe in Christ as my Savior, the way you keep growing in your faith as a Christian is by resting in Christ. I think that's one of the things that where Christians uh, you know, get confused is like, yeah, I'm saved as a Christian by grace through faith. I'm not saved by works. But now that I'm a Christian, oh God, I'll get to work and I'll make myself better. No. The way you grow as a Christian is by grace through faith and depending upon Him. It's waking up every day and saying, Lord, I know today I'm going to pull a Peter big time if you don't help me because I'm so broken and my thinking is so mixed up and I'm so easily influenced by the world. And so Jesus, pray for me today. Jesus, strengthen me today. You don't need the saints to pray for you. You need Jesus to pray for you. Jesus, intercede for me in heaven And Jesus, help me today to walk in the Holy Spirit. And you have to. So, so growing in Christ is about abiding in Christ, remaining in Christ in the Holy Spirit. And as we remain in Christ and abide in Him and trust Him moment by moment, we find the strength to walk forward and to resist evil and to become more and more like Him and to love the people that God puts in our lives. One of the things that uh, Matt. Uh, said that stuck with me. He said this a couple times, but he says that one of, one of the questions that the God asks, he feels like God has asked him is, Matt, are you willing to love anybody I put in your path? Like, whew, I, I don't think I am either able or willing. And so to love anyone God puts in my path is going to take the Holy Spirit living and working in me. And so we need to abide in Christ. Growing as a Christian does not mean moving beyond the Gospel. It means allowing the Gospel to move deeper into who I am and integrate itself more fully. It means letting these two great truths that I am a great sinner and Christ is a great Savior continue to reshape the way I live. One of those great sinners who found a great Savior was named John Newton. I don't know if you ever heard of him. He lived in the 1800s. He was a slave trader in the 1800s. And he was a wild party boy, and he lived just a crazy, reckless life. Uh, But somehow, by God's grace, he found Jesus, and his life was radically changed. And he went from being a wild party boy slave trader to becoming a Christian, and he even became a pastor. And so God transformed his life. He went from, you know, night to day. And it was such an amazing transformation that he wrote a song about it. And you probably know the song. It's Amazing Grace. He's the guy who wrote that song. You know, that wasn't written by some, you know, church marm, some lady who, you know, the organist in the church. That's not who wrote that song. It was written by a slave trader turned pastor. 
And he was so amazed by the grace that was shown to him. And it was John Newton who, when he was an old man, uh, was reported to have said to a friend of his, he said, I'm very old now and my memory's failing me and I don't remember a lot of things. He says, but these two things I do remember. I am a great sinner and Christ is a great Savior. And if you can remember those two things, you have the heart of the Gospel. And if you can embrace and receive those two truths, then you have Christ and salvation and eternal life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we love you. We are just in awe. Words.